Hey there! Welcome to the What Connects Us podcast, where we explore human connection through storytelling from people in the province. Today I'm chatting with Sarah Struby to hear her story about battling infertility and her wild experience with fertility treatments. You do not want to miss this one. All right, team, we are humming along on season two, and so far this season we have discussed the cost of battling cancer and taking back your identity, fostering an adoption, courage and leadership, and self-care and mental health. We've dug into some pretty heavy topics, and we're about to go even deeper in our next couple of episodes, starting with today's conversation with Sarah Struby. Today we are chatting about infertility, and Sarah will share her and her husband's emotional and very personal journey to their daughter, Reese. Unless you know someone who is open about their own infertility, it might be hard to fully empathize with the struggle that a lot of people face in silence. Sarah will tell us all about how heart-wrenching it is to receive the news and the pressure it places on a relationship, just how costly fertility treatments are both financially and physically, and how her fourth attempt at in vitro fertilization finally paid off after a very touch-and-go pregnancy. Sarah also does such a great job in educating us on why we should be careful about asking people about when they are planning on having kids and the do's and don'ts on providing support to those who are navigating infertility. You'll hear it for yourself in a moment, but Sarah is such a lovely and kind person, so this story will have you rooting for the Strubies the entire way. I wish you could have seen me this entire episode because as Sarah was talking, my jaw was on the floor. There are so many complications and twists to this story, so get ready because this episode is about to both teach us and make us feel some things. What connects us to Sarah? Let's find out. Sarah Struby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited for this. I feel like I'm just so thankful that you left your house. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that we're recording this in smack dab in the middle of a polar vortex where I think Regina just set a record for most hours consecutively under minus 40 degrees. So the fact that you like took your dog sled to get here. (laughs) I'm very thankful that you're here. You know what? It's honestly so nice to leave the house, especially after being stuck at home for basically the last month. Yeah. So full disclosure for everybody listening at home, we were set to record this weeks ago. And then you messaged me a couple days before and said, "Uh uh-oh, Matt just got diagnosed with um, COVID-19. So that's, we're going to have to go through that. So Tell me about what that was like, because I feel like we start this podcast all the time and say, how is COVID-19 affecting you? But you actually rumbled with it. What was that like for you and your family? It was really tough. You know, my husband is a frontline worker. So for months, this was something that we've been terrified of him bringing home and kind of expecting to bring home. Mm. And so unfortunately, he was exposed while on the job, got the call a couple days later while he'd already been home, you know, interacting with me and our right. and our daughter. And yeah, when he finally tested positive, it was pretty scary. We didn't know what to expect. He ended up getting really, really sick. Um, A few days later, our daughter tested positive. And then a few days after that, I tested positive. So it's like a domino effect. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And it hit you all quite differently, didn't it? Like you all had different symptoms. What was that like? Yeah. So really the only overlap that we had in symptoms was that we both had a fever, but otherwise it was completely different. Mm. You know, for my daughter and I, we basically just had a flu, which is still not fun with an infant, but you know, just a flu. And we were really over it in a few days. And for Mm. my husband, it was, you know, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, chest pains. It it was, it was scary, especially with him being, you know, he's 31 years old and I like to bug him about being old, but he's not. Right. And he's healthy. He's got no underlying conditions and it 
really shocked us how hard it hit him. Yeah. And I, I remember you posted that he is like the life of your household. Like he is yeah. so fun loving and it was so hard to see him like bedridden and not himself. Totally. Yeah. Like he would stay in bed. Some days he says he doesn't even remember those days because oh. he just stayed in bed for the entire day. Yeah. And yeah, his laugh is usually billowing through the halls. So mm. to not see him for days, it was, it was really scary. Oh, especially with a newborn too. And you're sick too. Like, oh. Yeah, it was a lot. It yeah. was absolutely a lot. I think on one of her worst nights, she was obviously feeling terrible. I think she was up 15 times that night. And I would have done anything for my mom to <laughs> yeah. come and just help us for a minute. 100% and she can't. But what's that like to actually receive that news? So I, I did actually cry when yeah. the call came in, mostly just being terrified of how it was going to impact mm-hmm. our daughter, yeah. right? This baby that means so much to us. Yeah. That was terrifying. And then just not knowing what to expect. Yeah. And especially after my husband got so sick, worrying that that same thing would happen to my daughter and I, and then, you know, constantly worrying, like, does he need to go to the hospital? Right. Do we need to get him oxygen? It was scary. Right. Yeah. But we're on the other side. Yes. Yes. Awesome. And I'm happy that you're on the other side because now we get to hear this amazing story that you have. So let's just jump into that. Give me a quick introduction. Who is Sarah Struby? Give me some background on who you are so we can better understand your story. So I am 27 years old and I was born and raised here in Regina. Um, I was raised by a single mom. My parents got divorced when I was nine and my mom raised my sister and I all by herself and she did an amazing job. Oh, wow. She's a really, really strong woman. I, I think a lot of who I am today, I owe to her for mm. sure. Um, and then I met my now husband when I was 17, we started dating and, um, three and a half years ago, we got married yep. four years this July and I work as a financial planner with RBC. Awesome. And then I guess the most important thing about me is that, or at least I think it's the most important is that I am a mom yep. to just about seven month old baby girl Reese. So a mom in a single parent household, what was that like for you and your sister? It was tough. Um, unfortunately my dad struggles with some mental health issues and mm. some substance abuse and so you know, it was really tough for my mom having to do it all on her own, but mm-hmm. she never complained. And looking back on it, she was just, she, and she still is the rock of our family and of my life and a huge part of why I'm the way that I am today. Oh, I love that. So tell me about your husband, Matt. So I feel like he's going to be um, a big part of this story because he's your co-pilot in this. So tell me about how any background with your husband that would be pertinent to the story. So Matt is definitely the kindest person that I know. He his smile lights up every single room that he's in and he is always calm, cool, and collected. He is a police officer for the city. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And he, um, no, he's just wonderful. Awesome. So in a nutshell, give me a snapshot of what life was like before you and Matt decided to pursue having children. So we knew, I think this is some backstory, but on our first date, actually, Matt told me that his dream was to be a stay-at-home dad one Oh, nice. Which sounds a bit intense for your yeah. first date. And we kind of <laughs> yeah. laughed it off, but no, it was always really important to us to have children one day right. and we wanted a family. And so we knew that leading up to having a family, we really wanted to take that time, just the two of us. Yeah. And um, we traveled, we traveled endlessly. We backpacked Europe twice. We traveled to so many different countries and we renovated a hundred year old house and oh, wow. watched so much Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> but we really just soaked up every moment, just the two of us, and spent a lot of it with our family and our friends. And yeah. Awesome. So take me to the beginning of your journey. Um, did you know that you'd have a tough road ahead of you to conceive right off the bat, or how was that uncovered? So when we were engaged in 2015, I had decided to go off of birth control just as kind of a preemptive thing. Right. 
I'd heard for some women that it takes them some time for their cycle to even out. And I wanted to get on top of it. Yeah. Like we talked about, I'm definitely a planner. Right. So, um, yeah, I'd gone off birth control and we started not trying by any means, but mm-hmm. if it happens, it happens. Yep. We were totally fine with having kids before we got married and obviously it didn't happen. And yep. that was that. And then after we got married, we started actively trying. And for anybody that's done that for any amount of time, you can attest to the fact that it's, it's a lot. It's, tr- you know, tracking your ovulation, taking yeah. your temperature, doing the deed at not the right. best times. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work. So yeah. we had done that for a number of months. And of course, every single month was a negative. And we were what felt like surrounded by people getting pregnant on the first try. Ugh. And um, yeah, so then I decided to book an appointment with my doctor, who I'm lucky to be pretty close with. Right. And she told me that things are probably fine, that, you know, she has people like this come in all the time and statistically couples conceive after the first year and, but that she would do some tests for me. So she ended up running some tests on me, which all came back great, which was great news for us. We thought, you know, we never really heard of fertility problems being with men. So we thought this was great. Right. Um, Then she sent my husband for some testing. And I remember the day that he got the call, he was actually in police college at the time. Mm. And so really not able to step out for appointments or anything. So he had got the news, called me at work, and he was really flustered. He didn't remember what she said. It was kind of a blackout moment. Oh, totally, yeah. So he had asked if I could go to the clinic to get the information because they wouldn't give him details over the phone. Oh. So I ended up going to the doctors. I remember it was a Wednesday at 10 to 5. They snuck us in at the end of the day. And I remember sitting in my room, the doctor's office room waiting, and my doctor came in and I kind of knew by the look on her face. And I remember, and I'll never forget this, her getting up on the bed with me. And that was when I knew something was going to be wrong. And That's terrifying. Right. (laughs) She grabbed my hand and she said, Sarah, you're going to be a mom, but it's not going to happen the way that you thought it was going to happen. And she hugged me and I cried. Yeah. (laughs) And... Then she showed me the results and told me that he had substantial DNA damage to his sperm Mm. and that she was a doctor and thought that this, we were probably going to need IVF, but that ultimately that's something that we were going to need a referral for, but just to kind of give me an idea of what the road ahead looked like. God, that's horrible. I'm sorry to hear that. But what a great way to tell you. It was wonderful. Is that you're going to be a mom someday, like that reassurance right off the bat. And it's it's a blessing in that moment that you were close with your doctor in order to have that close moment with her. Yeah, it was, I'll never forget it. It was the most kindness she could have shown me in such a tough moment. Mm -hmm. And I actually felt like I was there with a friend getting that news. It was amazing. Yeah, that must have been tough in that. Like, I feel like masculinity issues like come into play there where you might not feel like you are not only not able to provide for your family, but to provide a family. So that must have been so tough for him. Absolutely. I think he took quite a few months of grieving Mm -hmm. to really come to terms with it. And, you know, now he's completely fine. He can openly talk about it, but it was, it was, it was so tough for him, especially something he wanted so badly. And something that's been a common thread in your relationship is you said in your first date, he said that I want to be a stay at home dad. (laughs) Like that must be something he's been thinking of and like dreaming of his entire life is to have his own child and and to watch him grow up. Yeah. It was devastating for him. It was devastating for both of us. It just (sighs) was something we never expected. Right. So I read that one in eight couples struggle with infertility. That's a pretty common thing for couples to go through, but you don't really hear a lot about it. So why why do you think it's such a silent battle? 
I think there's so much shame that's attached to it, mm-hmm. um, embarrassment. And I think there's just, it's it, people don't know a lot about right. infertility and it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. Um, and especially I've found that it's easier to talk about once you have a baby. Yeah. Once was, you're kind of out of the woods. Yeah. Like it's same with like a cancer battle or something. It's like there's a happy ending at the end of it. Exactly. Right. So what came next? What options were available for you to help conceive? So for a lot of couples, they don't go right to in vitro fertilization or IVF. Yeah. There's a few different things that they can try beforehand. And that's kind of what we were expecting. Right. A lot of it is a lot less expensive. And um, we had had friends that had gone through similar experiences and they'd spent years with some of these other options. Right. And so what happened for us was we ended up getting referred to an IVF clinic and we ended up going to Calgary and we were expecting to be told that, you know, maybe we were going to start with some of these other options first. Right. After reviewing um, all of our information, they determined that that would not be an option for us Mm. and that we needed to go directly to IVF. Oh. And that was, yeah, it was, it was a shock for us. Yeah. We weren't expecting it, but at the same time, it was kind of a blessing Mm-hmm. because we knew we had some answers and we had a plan in place. And as crazy as this sounds, a lot of couples have undiagnosed infertility. Yeah. And they go years and years without knowing why mm-hmm. or what they can do to help the situation. Having a diagnosis has been such a blessing for us. Absolutely. Because we know what we can do. And also, like, you're not blaming other people. Like, someone that's close to me, it took them years and without any explanation outside of, well, it could be this, could be this. So it's hard not to feel like, well, I don't know what it is. It must be you. It's, it could be me. So it's almost like you resent the person you're with or you feel like an immense amount of shame about yourself. Right. And I think for us too, because we knew what we were dealing with, we had to really address it with each other yeah. head on. And we had a couple weeks where Matt was pretty sheepish around me mm. and finally we sat down and I just told him that I love you. I would never want to do this with anybody else. Mm. I'm not going anywhere. I don't blame you. And he was shocked. He said that he really expected me to say, okay, well, I'm going to go find somebody yeah. who this is going to be a heck of a lot easier with. And yeah. that never crossed my mind. I never blamed him. Right. And I still don't. I think it's something that happened to him. Yeah. You know, it's not his fault. And yeah. he's come to terms with that 100%. Awesome. Tell me about IVF. What is this treatment option like? And maybe just hit me with like the pros and the cons compared to other treatments or any risks that come in. So essentially every month when a woman um, is ovulating, she drops a mature egg and it is either fertilized by sperm or discarded as part of her period. And that's a natural cycle. Right. In IVF, what they're looking to do is have you create multiple eggs Mm -hmm. so that they can extract them out of you and then either fertilize them with your partner's sperm or with a sperm donor uh, and then they can grow in a petri dish and if they fertilize successfully they turn into embryos Mm. and then those embryos are either put back into you to result in a pregnancy or they are frozen for later use that is so interesting. It's very technical, and I I apologize if that is oversimplified. No, you crushed that. That was that was <laughs> I I was with you the entire way. It's pre- it's pretty complicated. I would say, the pros of it are obviously that it gives couples without any other options the option to conceive. Right. You know, for Matt and I, we would never have had children mm-hmm. prior to this 1978 when IVF was created. Right. And so that's one of the main pros. The other thing is that it gives couples with you know, genetic disorders the ability to embryo or to genetically test their embryos okay. to make sure that they're not passing that on. Tons and tons of pros. Um, the cons, I would definitely start with the cost. Yeah. It's incredibly expensive. Yeah, it's quite costly, isn't it? 
Yeah. And we honestly feel blessed that it was even an option for us. Right. Because for a lot of people, it just isn't. So like how much specifically would it be? So, yeah, it honestly depends a lot on the on the clinic that you decide to go with. Right. But for us, I actually just looked over our receipts last night and mm-hmm. wow, it's shocking. But you, we paid $10,000 for a basic round of IVF, right. our first egg retrieval. And that was including the IVF round and also something called ICSI, okay. which is where they literally pick the best sperm and they implant it inside of the right. egg. And so 10000 for that. Somewhere between three and eight thousand for your drugs, so we'll say we're at eighteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Then there's things called embryo hatching, where they actually poke a hole in your embryo to help it hatch. Oh, you pay for that. You also pay for your storage fees, so like a rental agreement for your embryos, like a storage unit for for your embryos. Exactly. Yeah. So we're at nineteen thousand there, and then you can pay for embryo genetic testing, which at the time was nine thousand Canadian. So yeah. really, you're looking anywhere from about fifteen thousand to thirty thousand. Wow. And, and on top of that, there's your accommodations. In Calgary. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and that's just for one round. And that's for an egg retrieval round. And then for embryo transfers, frozen embryo transfers, those are substantially cheaper, running about $5,000 a round. Wow. What is the success rate of IVF? So it depends on your age bracket. For us, yeah. we have a 35% success rate. Wow. So that's a lot of money for not a guarantee. It's not like you're going to a car dealership and you're putting that money down and you know you're you're driving off the lot with the car. The odds aren't even in your favor. Exactly. Yeah. And so obviously I, I have a child now. And so for me, it's easy to say I would spend yeah. that money a thousand times over, but you're exactly right. It is like gambling. It is like gambling, but like on the best thing, on the possible. Best thing possible, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's that like to, to manage that decision of whether to put down more money? So I would say we were pretty lucky in the sense that we were on the exact same page and we both knew we wanted this as bad as the other one and we had the same ceiling. And so for us, starting out, we were willing to pretty much do whatever it took. Mm -hmm. We were willing to live in our 600 square foot house, eating craft dinner and driving old vehicles. We were willing to sacrifice anything that we could, but it definitely weighs into all of your decisions that you make and it impacts your future. You know, we are still paying for IVF today. Yeah. So how did you finance it? So for us, we ended up, we had some savings to begin with and that was what we liquidated right off the bat. Right. And then after that, we did end up having to take out a loan and I despised that loan until I got pregnant. Yeah. And now for me, it just kind of feels like par for the course. It's a necessary evil. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. It's pretty lucky that you're a financial planner. Hey, like a lot of couples, just the financial strain would be a lot for them to shoulder, but you knew what probably what to do and what would be best for your financial well-being. Absolutely. And I've even had friends that, you know, they don't have credit available to them. They don't have savings available to them and they have to stop because they don't have any options. Uh, yeah. So we felt, we felt lucky that this was something that was even an option yeah, for that's, us. That's heartbreaking. Okay. Let's pause right there. As Sarah mentioned, the investment it takes for fertility treatments with no guarantee they will work is hard to stomach, but it is a reality of the process. A lot of people who don't have the money at the time turn to short-term investment options to make it happen for them. I reached out to Cheryl Moss, who is a financial advisor for our branch in Lemberg, which also happens to be my hometown. Cheryl has just celebrated her 30-year anniversary with Conexus and has some great insight on some short-term investment options and how they can help you reach your short-term saving goals quicker. Here's what she had to say. Absolutely, Mason. I can help with that. So short-term savings are an important part of an overall financial plan. Some might even think of it as emergency savings. So typically short-term savings is money you'll spend six months to three years out 
However, it's best to customize to each situation. And options could include things like savings accounts, term deposits, tax-free savings, and mutual funds. And even within those plans could be a mixture of accessible and non-accessible funds, depending on individual goals. And these options allow you to make your money work for you by developing a savings habit, utilizing the time, and generating a return. And this way, instead of the money sitting in your checking account where it might be tempting to spend on something else, it can be growing and getting you closer to your short-term savings goals a lot quicker. And setting up a pre-authorized credit to match your payroll, it's a great way to set it and forget it. And we have some tools for helping members with their planning, including budget and savings calculators, and then following up to check in on progress and adjust where needed. And those are just a few tips and tricks to help you reach your short-term saving goals. Thanks, Cheryl. We often think of investments as a long-term option, but there are solutions that can help you arrive at that meaningful moment in your life before you even know it. If you want to chat about any of the items Cheryl listed, visit connexusmoments.ca and book an appointment with one of our financial advisors. I can't guarantee it will be Cheryl, but I can guarantee that whatever your moment is, they can help get you there. Now let's get back to our interview with Sarah. So what are the risks associated with IVF or any fertility treatment? So I would say the first risk is obviously that it isn't always successful. And in fact, it usually isn't successful. Right. And then after that, there's there's your mental health yeah, that yeah. takes a huge hit. And a lot of couples end up deep in depression mm-hmm. over fertility treatments. And then there's the physical aspect to it as well. You know, you sign kind of away your life when you start on all these drugs and you read the risks and they are intense. One of the worst things that happened to me was something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Oh, what's that? It's actually incredibly common. It happens to one in three women that go through an egg retrieval and it can be life-threatening. Oh. So it's something that definitely should be taken seriously. It, it There's some huge health impacts. I guess that makes sense. Like overstimulated, like it is, you're basically tricking your system into producing a hyper amount of eggs. Is exactly. that correct? Yeah. So we talked about what a, what a typical round looks like. Take me to you're going through your first round, what's going through your mind and what was that process like for you? So we were pretty naive as I think every couple is when they start IVF that we really thought we were going to be in that 35% and we were going to do that first round and it was going to work for us. And I ended up getting that ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And so I wasn't able to put the embryo back. Right. I actually had to go to the hospital and we were shocked by this. We hadn't really weighed this as even an option. Yeah. And we left Calgary after almost a month there with no baby and we felt completely blindsided by it. So after that, we had had a successful embryo or an egg retrieval round, regardless of how it ended. And we had 10 embryos in the freezer and we were excited about that. And we waited another three months before we could do a frozen embryo transfer round. Yeah. And we were like, okay, now is the time. We're so excited. We were a little bit jaded from our first round, but we were ready to go. Yep. And I ended up getting pregnant on that next round. And we were excited. And honestly, the pregnancy left pretty much as soon as it came, it felt like. Oh. And I ended up losing that pregnancy. And it was then that we realized this might not work how we thought it was going to work. Right. And it took you until your fourth treatment. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So... We went another round after that that ended up six weeks of injections ended two days before I was supposed to go have an embryo transfer Mm. because I ended up with some serious complications from the medications. Right. 
And again, I ended up in the hospital and um, we were done. We were done for a bit then. And we had phoned the clinic and told them that I needed a break. I had blood in my pelvis and my body was fighting back. Yeah. I was young and healthy and my body was begging us to stop. So we phoned the clinic. We told them that we couldn't do it anymore. We were going to try again in 2020. Yeah. And a couple of hours later, actually, we got a call from a nurse, a nurse that we'd worked really closely with. And she was by no means coercing me into this, but said yeah. that she really felt strongly that we should try again. Yeah. That They'd had a meeting about us and they felt like this, this next round was going to be the one. And it was the toughest decision. Oh, I bet. Anybody that's decided to stop treatment, you know how much you're you want somebody to phone you and tell you to keep going. Yeah. You want any sign to tell you to keep Absolutely. going. Absolutely. And so we said, okay, we'll do this one last round and then we'll take a break. Yeah. Cause you're almost, you, you want it so bad. So like you're convincing yourself to do it and then you convince yourself to not do it. And then somebody else is convincing you again to do it. So you, it's like ping pong, like mm-hmm. you, your, your mental health must've just been, Oh, I can't even imagine. Absolutely. And this last round, we didn't have the same expectations that we had with the rest because, you know, we thought, whatever, we're just going to do this last one and we'll see what happens. And, you know, it can't be any worse than what's happened to us in the yeah. past. And it was not convenient for us. You know, I was, there was an alarm going off every two hours for yeah. medication for me. And I was traveling quite a bit for work yeah. and we were actually visiting our friends in New York and got the call from our doctor that we were ready to transfer. Yeah. So had to take a red eye from New York. Really? To Calgary. So you had to cut your vacation short to, yeah. oh, wow. So we got there. We landed at 8 a.m. and our transfer was at 8.45. And it was just a really light day. It was, we were so tired and yeah. we were in such a good mood. And we showed up and we were all laughing in the room, in the procedure room. And we ended up getting our main doctor, which is pretty rare. Yeah. And it was just different. I remember the nurse saying, I think this is going to be it. I think this is going to work for you. And even our endocrinologist, when he implanted the embryo, he looked at Matt and said, do you want to play a song? So Matt played Good As Hell by Lizzo. <laughs> oh my, he's never going to live that down. And he said, do you want to film your baby getting implanted? And it just yeah. felt so personal. And we went home and six days later, we found out we were pregnant. Oh, that sounds like, even as you're saying that, I can feel like just this, this heavy story kind of lifting. And what's funny is you're sitting in front of a TV display. And as you're telling the story, this like sunrise is, is, is happening <laughs> behind you. This, you could just feel this, this hope that's building. So Lizzo, hey, Lizzo made all the difference. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, to this day, he has no idea why. I think he was nervous, but we had all these songs we talked about. Yeah. And that one is the one he picked. Right. Must've heard it on the airplane or something like that. Ridiculous. So you find out that you're pregnant. So you're like, okay, here we go again. What changed? What was the difference between your second treatment and your fourth treatment? So we found out we were pregnant and I want to say that it was this big, exciting moment for us. And it was, mm-hmm. but it was also for anybody that's gone through anything like this, you'll, you'll know that it's also terrifying. Yeah. I ended up having quite a tumultuous pregnancy. Mm. And I think two weeks after finding out I had my first hemorrhage. And so Mm. I had a series of subchorionic hemorrhaging all through my first trimester, which is just a big bleed, very similar to a miscarriage. And we were told basically our baby had a 50-50 chance every time we had a bleed like this. Oh, gosh. So it was terrifying. It was um, definitely we never we never took a breath. Yeah. Um, And then shortly after I got diagnosed with something called a hyperemesis gravidarium, which is Really just like insane morning sickness. Mm. And so... Say, say, what, insa- insa- <laughs> <laughs> say that one more time. Hyperemesis gravidarian. Oh my gosh. That sounds like a gladiator. 
Like <laughs> it was. It was. It was the craziest thing. Yeah. Oh so God. Puking like 30, 35 times a day in the hospital, getting fluids all the time. Oh. Anybody that's had bad dominoes knows that like one day of that is like god awful. I can't imagine doing that for more than one day. It was horrific. Oh. So I ended up the bleed stopped after my first trimester. And so we felt like we were a little bit in the clear. The sickness continued. And then at our anatomy scan, which happened at around 20 weeks, we found out that we had a pretty rare condition called a velamentous cord insertion, which is essentially where the placenta and the umbilical cord, they just don't connect. They connect through the uterine wall, which means that the umbilical cord is basically not protected. Right. And so at any time, the cord and the placenta could rupture, and that would obviously kill the baby almost instantly and me within, I think, five minutes. Oh, my gosh. A few weeks after that, I got diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Sarah, this is <laughs> this is like you are giving me like a WebMD like schooling here, but all of this is all sounding very scary. I can't imagine what you were going through in these moments. Yeah, it was terrifying. You know, the needles came back. I started on insulin. Yeah. And um, we were terrified. We didn't announce our pregnancy. I know that you'll maybe notice I yeah. announced it super late in our pregnancy. Yeah. Because we never felt like we had the green light. We could never take a breath. So when, typically it's like you're at the end of the first trimester, you feel like you're in the clear to to announce your pregnancy. When did you, how long was it after until you felt comfortable telling people that you were pregnant? Two months before she was born. Wow. It was seven and a half months pregnant. Yeah. Um, and we still didn't feel like we were in the clear. But we had weekly doctor's appointments that lasted five to eight hours. Right. And so we felt like we were being monitored really closely. And like this baby was coming regardless of how yeah. she came. So were you telling anyone that you guys were going through this or people just didn't hear from you for months because you were dealing with all of these these medical issues? A lot of people didn't know that we were pregnant. A yeah. lot of people knew that we were going through IVF because we tried to be pretty open and honest about it. But right. really, a lot of my pregnancy was during the pandemic, so I was working from home. Right. So people had no idea. You were just on Zoom calls and people were just thinking you were taking some sick days here and there. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So then take me to what happened after seven and a half months. You're telling people about that you're pregnant. What was that like for your last, like your sprint into um, being able to have Reese? You know, it was amazing. I feel like we finally, after we told people, it took so much pressure off of us and it made it more real. Yeah. And I really enjoyed those last two months. I feel like I really got to know her. She was so active. She was always punching and kicking. Yeah. And Well, she's a fighter, it sounds like. Yeah, she is. She's a total fighter. Yeah. What was that like to have to tell people that news? Like you were finally pregnant and you would have had so many close people in your life knowing that this has been an issue for you and Matt. What was that like to be able to to speak those words? It was surreal. It was something I knew in my heart we were always going to be able to say one way or another, but people were very emotional about it. Everybody yeah. was so happy for us and it was it was so wonderful to share that with people. Okay, so mid-pandemic, Reese was ready to make her arrival. What was that like? So they took her a little bit early. And um, we were so excited leading up to it. It felt like we had been waiting for years for this baby. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had actually, when we started IVF, through all of our treatments, I'd been writing letters to our future baby, but to Reese. Aww. And I felt like I knew her. I totally felt like I knew exactly who she was. I felt like I knew her personality. And so the day that she came, she came after a marathon labor, four hours of pushing. Ouch. And yeah, she came in my chest and it wasn't... It wasn't like I was meeting her at all. It was like, oh my gosh, it's you. Yeah. I recognized her totally. It was the most euphoric moment. It was like everything that we'd been working for. Oh, I've got chills. <laughs> like 
that the amount of joy that must have brought you to finally be at the finish line it was with your baby amazing just to hear her first cry that came out and she is wonderful oh good for you guys um so how has the first year of being a mom been like and you mentioned that you are we are in a quarantine pandemic all that sort of stuff what an unusual experience which seems like par for the course for what you guys have been going through already what's year one been like so you know I'm a first time mom, so yeah. I don't really have anything else to compare it against. But I will say Reese had pretty bad colic, crying for hours and hours and hours on end. And it was tough doing it kind of all by myself. But I've tried to just really be grateful for every moment of this. And we've got tons of friends that are still in the thick of IVF right. and would, would kill to be in our shoes. And so every time that one of us is having a moment of, oh, my gosh, this is so hard, we remind each other how lucky we are, how grateful we are for the position that we're in and, you know, that we have to love this child for all the people that maybe don't get the same opportunity as us. 100%. So I read that couples are three times more likely to divorce or end their cohabitation if infertility exists in the relationship. You talked about how much of a blessing it was that you and Matt had a diagnosis to combat together. How did that impact your marriage? And what was the key for you and Matt to navigate that together to stay united through such a stressful time? So we definitely were very aware of how this can impact a marriage. And we'd heard tons of stories of marriages that had fallen apart from IVF or shortly after. And so we were really cognizant of that the entire time. But for us, I think the biggest thing was talking. Yeah. Um, I suggest counseling for anybody that's going through IVF and a lot of clinics included as part of their treatment plan. But it's definitely something that you need to work through these issues because they're not going to go away when IVF is done. And so for us, just constantly keeping the dialogue open. And the other thing was that it would be really easy to stop your life while you're going through IVF. Right. You know, I'm not going to apply for that job because I'm going to be on maternity leave then. Yeah. You know, to think that way. And so the biggest piece of advice that I have is keep living, keep doing things for yourself. The day that I lost our first pregnancy was the day that we got the keys to our first new house. Oh, wow. And that I started a new job. Wow. So it, it was the worst day of my life, but it, all these other doors were opening. And I was so glad that I'd pushed myself to continue living while yeah. we were going through all this. That's also no, so nice that you were able to end that chapter of that first failed one, but start a new one right off the bat, rather than just living in that narrative of failure off of that first one. Exactly. And it's so easy to just be engrossed in IVF. And it is, it's all consuming, Yeah, but important to keep doing things for yourself too. For sure. So what misconceptions do you think exists about IVF and infertility treatments? I think the biggest thing is that people think it's a sure thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd be, we'd tell people that we were going to start IVF and they would be like, congratulations. And when would <sighs> your due date be? And it just doesn't work that way. We yeah. talked about the, the odds and it, it definitely doesn't work that way. And for some people it doesn't work at all. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions. The other thing is that people think it's covered yeah. through health insurance and it isn't. It's not, no. Um, and then a lot of people, when they find out you're going through fertility treatments, the first thing out of their mouth is, why don't you just adopt? Oh, yeah, I've heard this before. And it comes from a good place, yeah. right? I think something important to remember is there is a huge grieving period that has to happen if you want your like if you want to have biological children to then arrive at okay it's time to adopt that's a huge that's a huge process to get there and also adoption is not easy yeah it's not an easy it's not an easy process by any means no and people are biologically hardwired for children right. they and 
not just like physically, but emotionally. And a lot of it too, like I said before, it's kind of like a silent battle sometimes. People feel a lot of shame, I think, when they feel like they can't conceive naturally, that it's hard to just suggest advice when you're not exactly sure the the trials and tribulations that people have been through in that aspect. Exactly. So if someone is listening, we're kind of touching on it, but if someone's listening and is currently going through infertility or contemplating IVF, what advice would you give them? I think starting off, I would say that if you're going through IVF or any type of fertility treatments, but specifically IVF, it is going to be the most challenging thing that you're probably ever going to do in your life. But it is also going to teach you a patience and a resilience that honestly can only be learned through experience. Mm. And one day it is going to make you a better partner and a better mother and a better friend. And it is something that is going to add to your life. Absolutely. What have been some moments where you felt like you've looked down at Reese and you're like, I'm so happy I went through this process? Honestly, every day I could, I could cry talking about my daughter. I, somebody asked me recently what it was like being her mom after going through all that. And the, the best way that I can explain it is, have you ever had a dream that someone that you love died? Mm-hmm. Like your mom passed oh, away. Oh yeah. And you, you wake up just sobbing. Right. And you're like, oh my gosh, mom, you're still here. And you hug them and you're so grateful. Yeah. That's what it's like being her mom every morning. And I mean it every morning. I'm like, I'm so glad you're here because I remember what it was like for you to not be here. Absolutely. And I think what's so great about your story too is that you come from a household where you had a mom that was like willing to fight for for you and your sister. And now you kind of get to mirror that with, with Reese. And because you just listed off how many medical conditions that you had to battle. It was an uphill, such an uphill battle for you and Matt that now you get to kind of show what your mom taught you. Absolutely. I, being a mom, I thought it was going to be wonderful and it's 10 times anything that I could have imagined. Mm-hmm. And honestly, every single day, I, I remember how my mom was with us and anytime that I feel like I'm losing my cool or I'm forgetting to be grateful, I remember the situation that I'm in and the situation that she was in and how I need to be more like her. One of the goals of this podcast is to bring this, this episode specifically is to bring more awareness to how common infertility is and how to equip those who know someone that's going through it or someone who doesn't even know somebody's going through it, but with the do's and don'ts when supporting. So what advice would you give them and what did you find helpful or recommend avoiding? So I think the biggest thing is we as human beings are so hardwired to give each other advice. Mm. You you tell me you're going through something and, oh, have you tried this cream or have you gone to this doctor? And I think the biggest thing with somebody that's going through infertility is do not provide advice unless you've been through it. It's so hard to say that because it's so easy to just kind of go right to the advice, but they don't want to hear it, especially if you have no experience. And everybody wants to tell the story of their unicorn friend that did IVF for years, stopped and got pregnant. And that is a wonderful story, but it is unfortunately the exception, not the rule. And it can be pretty hurtful to hear. And so the easiest thing to do when somebody tells you that they're going through infertility is just to say, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. It's not fair. I'm here for you. I have no idea how to help you, but I want to, and I'm here for you. Yeah. It's so true. We, we said it earlier, but it's like we all want the happy ending or we all we are all wanting to look on the bright side. And sometimes there's just no bright side. And it's just important to be present and be there for people like that. Like I've like I, I've mentioned before, 
somebody who's very close to me went through it. Um, and people would go up to her and like put her, their arms around where her stomach and say, where's the baby coming? If you don't know the story of what's going on there or just use some common sense to think like maybe there is an issue here that it just, you don't really, you don't really know how much you're impacting that person. And really it's not even safe to say that anymore with, like we said, one in eight experiencing yeah. this and more couples experiencing just taking longer to conceive. You have no idea what somebody's going through. So really just taking that question off of the radar would be best. There's yeah. also a lot of people that have just chosen to be childless yeah. and maybe they don't want to explain Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So looking back, what did you learn about yourself? And if you could go back in time and give some advice to Sarah, who is in the peak of emotion during infertility, what would you tell her? You know, probably the biggest thing that I learned about myself is that I'm more resilient than I thought I was. I've definitely been through a lot in my life and I never imagined that this would be the most difficult thing that I've been through, but um, I'm definitely more resilient than I thought. And Matt and I are stronger than I would have thought to begin with. Mm -hmm. And probably the advice that I would give me is, and the advice I'm going to give anybody else too, is this is super overwhelming. If you look at your protocol for the drugs that you need and the alarms that you need to set, it's going to hurt your brain. So waking up, all that you need to do is do the next thing. So maybe that means your injection at 10, or maybe it means going to the lab. Only looking one thing ahead keeps it digestible. It reminds you that you can do it and it keeps your, your mental health in check. Yeah. Wow. Sarah, that is a story. I feel like I, I need a nap after, <laughs> after that one. I feel just so proud of you and Matt for what you guys went through, not just have the process of IVF, but hearing that news, shouldering that news, choosing to stick together and be there for each other. And then that uphill battle, the fact that Reese is here, I feel like every time I see an Instagram post or anything from you, I am just beaming. I'm so proud and happy for you guys. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's, it's the best story and I'm so grateful to share it because I know that there's so many people out there listening that have been through something similar And yeah, it's just so near and dear to my heart. Awesome. So you're not done yet. I'm going to hit you with 10 speed round questions where we'll connect with you on on a different level. Um, The first one is related to COVID. Um, So what did you learn about yourself during COVID prior to the diagnosis? That I love being at home with my husband and my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) That I don't like people as much as I think. Right. I feel like everybody went through that. It's like, I feel like once the restrictions are done, I might just spend a lot more time at home anyway. Exactly. Uh, What's your first trip the moment it's safe to do so? Either Hawaii or New York. You're going to go back to New York, hey? You're going to finish that trip that you didn't get to, you didn't get to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any plans before you had to take that red eye? Like, were you going to take in like a Broadway show or anything like that? No, that was the second time we'd been. And that time we were really just going to see our friends. So we were just laying low anyways. Oh, gotcha. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, how annoyed do you get when people spell your name with an H at the end? You know what? I don't get annoyed at all. Really? No. So it's like a one or a two? Yeah. Usually I'm talk to texting anyways and nothing yeah. I say makes any sense or is spelled <laughs> correctly. I just assume everyone else is doing that. I feel like talk to text is such a good tool for moms. Oh my gosh. I had no idea what it was before becoming a mom. And yeah. then I'm like, how did I ever sit down and type anything? 100%. What was your first passion as a kid? Oh my gosh. I have no idea. Probably eating bugs or something ridiculous. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I was a picture picturing like Furbies, maybe like um, Pokemon cards or something like that. But you're you're a bug eater. I was a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going down this road. Okay. 
Oh, all right. Um, okay. Where would I find you in a house party? In the kitchen on the island eating chips. Yeah. Or if someone's listening that knows the story in front of a fireplace sleeping. Really? I love to sleep. I will do it anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. I, I would be the person on the island with you, like, like saying, hey, stop hogging the queso dip. Yeah, there you are. The first time that Matt met me, I didn't meet him because I was in a bowl of chips. Really? Was at a party and um, yeah, I was eating chips. Didn't really? Up once. So he was like, that girl's got good taste in, in chips. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to be a good wife. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, and last question, what connects us? I think especially in the season of my life that I'm in right now, it's love. Love that connects me to other moms and you know the love that we have for our family. Yeah, and I think just with love, it, you want to fight for something. And a really great thread in your, your story is just whether it's your mom um, fighting for you and your, your sister and whether it's you and Matt going through such an uphill battle in order to or to make sure that Reese is here. Love is a, such a great answer, especially with your story. So thank you for joining me. Like I said, it's a tundra out there, but uh, thank you so much for sharing. Infertility is such a topic that a lot of people hold on to for their own personal stories. And I think a lot of people, if they haven't gone through it, will take away a lot of learnings, not just about the technical side, but just how to treat and empathize with people who are going through it. I'm just so happy for you and your family. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell our story. Yeah. This is so important to me and I'm so grateful to share. Absolutely. It's a good one. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the What Connects Us podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. If you like the podcast, please do us a favor and hit the subscribe or follow button and give the post a like, comment, or a share. We'll see you in two weeks. Till then, Sarah and I are off to crush some chips. On a kitchen counter. <laughs>